Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk executive producer Rob Perra. Danny will be conducting interviews here every day, talking with experts on food and agriculture, and discussing topics like the impact of COVID-19 on the food system, unsung food heroes, how climate change continues to be a threat to agriculture, and other pressing social and environmental challenges that impact farmers, eaters, and the economy. Today on Food Talk, Danny talks with AeroFarms co-founder and CMO Mark Oshima about how vertical farming and aeroponics can help slow climate change and support community food security. Later, Danny talks with student activist and master gardener Frida Herrera Endejoke about her approach to nutrition justice, building urban gardens and fighting building urban gardens and fighting food waste. Enjoy the show. Before um, we start, and I introduce our, our awesome guest, Margo Shima from AeroFarms, I want to give another shout out to um, our content coordinator, Alita Seely. She's come up with a, a really great idea to build community um, for our interns by having, uh, and our fellows, by having uh, a book club, sort of a, a food tank book club where... Um, you know, we can all sort of, you know, staff to not just the interns where we can all uh, read different books and, and talk about them um, during our, our staff meetings and, and, you know, share what we're learning. And because obviously what's been going on over the last um, week and a half or so, she's hoping to start off the book club with a, a set of books on, on food justice and, and the intersection of, of food, race, and culture, which I just thought was a brilliant idea. And she started, you, the thing to know about Elena is she started working with us about two months ago at the start of the pandemic, and she's just hit the ground running and has been such an asset to our, our scrappy little crew. So I'm super grateful for her. Um, and I just want to share the books that she's suggesting and a couple that I think we should also, uh, you know, if, if in some of our spare time on weekends, we should all be picking up. Um, the first is Black Food Geographies uh, by Ashante Reese, um, Agrarian Dreams by Julie Guthman, uh, Food from the Radical Center by Gary Navham, uh, who, we, who we love, uh, The Cooking Gene by Michael Twitty. Racecraft by Karen E. Fields and Barbara J. Fields, White Fragility uh, by Robin D'Angelo. Um, one of my favorite books is Farming While Black by Leah Peniman at Soulfire Farm. Uh, and our friend, uh, farmer friend Clara Coleman suggests on her Facebook page the book Me uh, and White Supremacy. Um, combat racism, change the world, and become a good ancestor. So just some food for thought um, as we think about our own biases uh, and, and, and think about how to make the world a truly better place that's uh, more equally, more equal and, and socially just. So again, thank you, Elena. You, you continue to, to be a rock star um, uh, for Food Tank. Um, today, as I said, I get to uh, talk to Margo Shima, who is the co-founder and chief marketing, marketing officer of AeroFarms, a technology company that builds and operates indoor vertical farms around the world. Uh, Mark, how are you? It's so nice to have you uh, and talk to you today. Uh, it's great to connect too, Danny, and, and great to be able to uh, share, you know, what's happening with us. And, you know, thank you for continuing to serve as an inspiration, as a beacon with all of the great work you're doing with Food Tank. And just even that list that you just shared is inspiring. And so uh, these are the things that we're excited to be able to uh, learn from you and learn from your audience. So thank you for this opportunity. Uh, no, it's my pleasure. 
Um, so, Mark, I'm hoping you can just, you know, uh, I've known AeroFarms for years and, and you started in 2004, but I'm hoping you can give our, our listeners just sort of a, a snapshot of the work you do. We are uh, one of the world leaders for indoor vertical farming. And so when we talk about our ability to grow indoors year round, it's our ability to convert warehouses. It's really fundamentally just changing about where we think we can put the farms. How do we enable local production? How do we put the farms in the cities? And we really very much think about our farms as being by the community for the community. Our Mm -hmm. headquarters, we're in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, We first started out in the upstate New York area in the Finger Lakes. Um, One of our co-founders and our chief science officer, Dr. Ed Harwood, was a professor at Cornell University. It's one of the top ag schools in the world. And his focus there was deploying technology to help farmers. And so we've always had a very much science-driven approach, thinking about how can we do more with less. Uh, the aero and aero farms refers to aeroponics. So it's a type of hydroponics, but it's even more efficient. We're misting the roots with the targeted water and nutrients. And then instead of sunlight, we're using LED lights. And so understanding that plants don't need spectrum, they need uh, sunlight, they need specific types of spectrum so we can uh-huh. really think about how do we optimize the right growing environment for the plants and enable that local production and be able to nourish communities uh, year in, year out? Yeah, and it's really exciting to see how much you and and other vertical farming operations have grown really over the last 15 years. You you know, you've seen astronomical growth and interest in, in what you're doing. Yeah, today, I mean, we're an organization of over 170 people. Uh, we've built nine farms to date. Uh, we've had a global presence. Uh, we announced plans this last month about building out what's going to be the world's largest indoor vertical farm just for R&D. That's going to be in Abu Dhabi in the UAE. Mm-hmm. But when we think about, you know, the challenges that we face here in the U.S. Uh, in terms of uh, loss of arable land, access to fresh water, uh, these things are even more acute in other regions. And so we have a focus in thinking about the Middle East, uh, Asia, Northern Europe, and thinking about, again, how we can have an impact uh, in those areas and regions as well. Yeah, I, I didn't realize you were going to be in the UAE. That's, that's uh, yeah, that's a, I, I just visited there. Uh, I think it was this year, earlier in the year before all this, uh, this craziness has happened. But it, it's such an interesting place. And, um, you know, they have to import so much of their food. So I, I think probably having sort of food closer to where consumers actually are will be um, beneficial in, in so many ways. I, I'm wondering, you know, I, I know folks have a lot of um, maybe preconceived notions or misconceptions about vertical farming and, and indoor and, you know, sort of super controlled agriculture. What do you think some of those biggest misconceptions are? Well, first and foremost, you know, what we're doing is uh, we're able to focus on taste and really celebrate that. And so some of the indoor farming and traditional greenhouses um, people have talked about tomatoes not being, you know, kind of tasteless and not having a lot of flavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's because fundamentally you have to understand you know, what are they growing for. And so we have to appreciate we have a very complex food system. And typically, you know, where our food is grown is not where it's consumed. And so we've changed that paradigm and we can think about putting at the forefront flavor uh, and, and celebrate that as opposed to thinking about, you know, does it have this uh, really long shelf life or is it hardened so that it can withstand a very you know, complex in terms of multiple touch points or can it withstand, you know, processing or washing? Um, those are some of the traditional, you know, thing, thinking people have had. Uh, but what's exciting is that today the majority of tomatoes that are, are 
consumed and, and bought at the supermarket are now grown indoors. And so there's a better appreciation that, again, the challenges that we see outdoors are getting more acute every day. And so whether it's tomatoes, whether it's leafy greens, we see huge opportunities in terms of thinking about certain types of crops where we can have a specific impact. And so for us, it's starting with flavor and really focusing on how do we drive some excitement there. Um, there's other aspects though, just to be very uh, open and transparent. You know, when people see indoor vertical farming and they see the idea that we don't grow with sunlight um, and they see that we grow with lights. So there, there's a, a sense around energy intensity around that. And so, you know, there's a couple of different ways of thinking about that. First and foremost, the sunlight's not free. And so if you think about field growing and you think about the traditional growing cycle, say for leafy greens, it may be 30 days, it may be 45 days. And that variable there is really depending on the time of year and the season. And so, you know, what other manufacturing business, growing business, you know, has that kind of variability of 50%, you know, types of uh, difference. So uh, big challenges in terms of where you grow. Uh, there's a reason why Salinas is known as the salad bowl uh, because sure. of the environment there. But if it's not grown there, it's grown in Yuma, Arizona, uh, four months of the year. And again, if it, opposite times of the year, it's a, it's a desert. So really challenging in terms of thinking about, you know, where our food is grown today and how do we manage that differently. But how we think about our systems and our growing, um, all of our technology is proprietary. And so we've been able to think very clear, you know, closely in terms of the design, not only on the CapEx, but the OpEx. And so managing that energy intensity. Uh, our, for example, our chief technology officer is formerly a chief technology officer of a publicly traded LED company, formerly of GE mm -hmm. Lighting. We have this expertise in-house. We have our own uh, lighting um, approaches that are our own proprietary that are at least 24 months ahead of the, anyone else in the industry. So both in terms of energy efficiency, but more importantly, how we think about delivering the right spectrum of light to the plants. And so it's very targeted. So when you think about like this way of farming and you think about the growing approach that we have, uh, this is a way of growing that an annualized basis has over 390 times more productivity per square foot and you would in the field farm while using 95% uh -huh. less water, while using no pesticides. And so it's really about how do we change that equation, inputs and outputs, and think very differently about, um, again, how we manage each of those different uh, aspects and, and resources. Can you give our listeners a sense of the scale of, of, of these operations you mentioned? You, you now have nine farms. How big are we talking about? Yeah, these are large scale. These are facilities you know, 70, 90,000 square feet um, in square footage. Uh, we're talking about 40 foot high ceilings. Uh, we're talking about our growing towers, uh, 12, 14 levels of growing. And so the mm -hmm. idea is we're all sort of thinking about productivity per cubic foot, right? How do we maximize uh, that output? And so these are vertical beds stacked on top of each other, just to paint that picture, you know, for the audience. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> The difference is that, you know, the plants are all planted for specific customers. This is just in time growing. And it allows us to have this kind of scale and efficiency that we can really work with a wide range of different customers. Uh, it's not just a niche product. It's not just for the Whole Foods, but it's also at the mass supermarkets like ShopRite. Um, we also work with major food service operators. We work with institutions like schools. Our whole focus is about how do we democratize access to better tasting food and really bring that to the masses. And since COVID-19, since you do sell to a lot of institutions and school districts, uh, I, I'm sure that's had a huge effect on, on sort of your bottom line and figuring out different ways to get your produce to people who, who, who need it or um, to, to keep, you know, the, the, 
um, shelves and, and grocery stores stocked. Yeah, without question. I mean, overnight food service disappeared. And so, you know, we had to pivot. And one of our advantages, though, is because we have such a fast growing cycle. So for that baby leafy green that I was mentioning that out in the field may take 30 to 45 days to grow, we can grow in 12 to 14 days because we're optimizing the environment for the plants. And so we actually were able to adjust our seeding schedule, harvest schedule. Uh, There was Mm -hmm. great demand at retail and we were able to deploy more product uh, to the retail sector. So it allows us to be nimble, allows us to be responsive uh, to the marketplace and be able to serve it. So we were able to, to make that change. Uh, we'll be the first to tell you it was not easy. Um, we sure. talked about worker coverage. Uh, we thought the biggest thing is when the schools closed in terms of daycare and helping manage right. that. Um, and so we worked closely with our team in terms of thinking about shifts, um, shift coverage, you know, time of shifts to be able to make sure. But as a food producing company, as an essential you know worker, we felt a real tremendous responsibility about you know how do we keep that flow of product. Uh, out to the community, and we're excited that we've been able to maintain that. Well, and you've been donating a lot of food to organizations who need it, too, right? Yep, yep. So in terms of um, our ongoing work we do within the community, we work with great organizations um, like Community Food Bank for New Jersey, Table for Uh Table. Uh, We've also been working with a great organization called Teens for Food Justice. Uh, So the idea how do we get product out uh, to help serve the communities uh, is really important. And so this is, you know, fundamentally, you know, again, how do we make sure that everybody has access to, to good, healthy food? And that access point is, I think, a really important one. But it's also, I mean, I, we talk a lot about access and getting more fresh produce into communities. But can we talk about the affordability angle? Can you talk sort of about price points for folks? I mean, it's great that you're donating and I love that. And, and, and you produce an amazing product. But how sort of affordable is it for, for most folks? Yeah, well, there's a couple ways of looking at it. First, I mean, it's priced at the same price that you would find uh, field-grown product at. Um, so from an accessibility standpoint, you know, it, it's been specifically we're at very conscious about how do we target that, that, uh, that price point. But we think it's a very different value proposition, though, in terms of um, traditionally with packaged salads, uh, about 50% is thrown out because of spoilage. And that right. has to deal with this very complex supply chain. So by the time it's grown on the West Coast, gets here, it's already five to seven days old. And it's gone through a very intensive process. So when you think about when it says it's triple washed, you know, what are they washing away? It's the soils, the chemicals, but the third time is on for the cross-contamination. But it's a very aggressive process. It introduces moisture, it bruises the product, and it always compromises, you know, that shelf life. So our product, it's actually clean. It's ready to eat. There's no washing needed. There's no soil to wash off. There's no chemicals to wash off. Um, so we have a better shelf life so the consumer can enjoy it. So just fundamentally, just the sheer aspect of what they purchase, they get a, a chance to enjoy it. Uh, and then we're talking about better flavors and increased nutrition. So you have to really think about once you harvest the product, you should really think about mm-hmm. almost like getting it on an ambulance, getting it to the consumer right away because things like vitamin C are degrading pretty quickly. So that product that you have on shelf that's been there for days has a very different nutritional value than something that's just harvested and on, on the available within 24 hours. And so um, we think it's a very different value proposition, even from that uh, standpoint. And I know you've been working um, with the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research to sort of, you know, study that kind of nutrient density angle and, and the resiliency. Can you talk about, how, you know, wh- what kinds of things you're learning? 
Yeah, so this is an exciting program working with FAR, the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research. It's an example of some of the public-private partnerships that we do. Um, the idea is, you know, again, this is no longer about indoor farming. It's no longer about vertical farming. But the work we're trying to do is how do we help agriculture overall? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the programs that we've been working on, we're in the final year. If it's a three-year program, it was around specifically our ability to identify stressors of leafy greens to optimize for taste and nutrition. And we're also working with traditional land-grant universities like Cornell University, like Rutgers University as well, helping them think about not only what's next in terms of curriculum, but also how do we think differently about um, addressing things like satiety and thinking about, again, how to have a better product. And so all of this research is going to be published. And when we think about how do we increase consumption of produce, how do we change behavior, uh, we're going to be able to share some lessons around First, it starts with you got to make it taste good, right? And so that's the feedback we're getting in terms of that kind of enjoyment. Out of that work um, and working with uh, FAR, we actually have another initiative that just kicked off. It's called PIP, and it's called Precision Indoor Plants Consortium. And here, again, it's industry-led. We're one of the architects and we're one of the main players. Um, But the idea from what could be from the genetics to post-harvest, how do we improve uh, the quality of, of, of the products? And so... Uh, we're helping uh, lead that uh, and helping be part of a key, you know, role in terms of growing and experimentation around that. But it's to benefit the broader industry. And so what's exciting for us is that what we've realized is that we're able to extend this expertise around growing plants to other categories. You know, uh-huh. We've grown for 800 different types of varieties of different plants. And so we see huge areas of where we can have an impact. And so there's actually there's another pillar for Aero Farms where we have uh, under our strategic partnerships. You know, we're working with Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies specifically on their ag supply chain needs. And so it's exciting for us to think about the kind of impact we can have. And when we talk about building the world's largest indoor vertical farm just for R&D, it's about how do we build on that and continue to build on that work with these major global CPG companies on mm-hmm. helping address um, and creating better products. So it's been exciting to see the kind of impact we can have do you think that the the pandemic will increase interest in in vertical farming and aeroponics and hydroponics and the whole the whole slew of of ponic uh, operations uh, uh, around the world, or do you think you know folks are are more interested? I mean, and we can get into this in a minute. Are more interested in in food grown from the soil? So, I think. Even before um, COVID-19, there was an appreciation that we have more challenges than ever before with uh, arable land, increasing population, increasing urbanization, food safety, food recalls, um, that we need multiple solutions at the table. And so we want to work within agriculture to be able to help drive innovation. It's going to be relevant for certain crops. So there's always going to be field farming. Uh, But Mm -hmm. that what we can do is serve as inspiration for further innovation about we can do more with less. And so I think there's just uh, even a greater appreciation now with COVID-19 that we think about uh, food resiliency, we think about supply chain, uh, and we talk about how do we actually have uh, enable that local production. So we're talking about food security, food sovereignty. Yeah, these are really, really top of mind in terms of, again, the work that uh, we're doing on the strategic partnership standpoint, also our corporate development team in terms of mm-hmm. inquiries we're getting every single day about can we build a farm in this particular region or particular geography. So we see this accelerating even further, uh, but we also see it as part of a broader you know, ecosystem and how do we help drive innovation across the whole value chain. 
Well, and, and before you were saying that, you know, your farms are always by the community for the community. What does that actually mean when we're talking about the people who work there and that, that you know, that innovation that you're working to drive? So where we have our global headquarters is in Newark, New Jersey. So 40% of our team lives in Newark, is from Newark. Uh, 85% lives within 15 miles, you know, of the farm. And so... Uh-huh. Uh, that's at the heart of when we say by the community, for the community. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, providing uh, jobs, econ- driving economic development, it's fair wages and benefits, it's year-round employment. This is not seasonal work, right? This is a really to be able to, you know, uh, it's about increasing access to food as well. Uh, we also think about uh, partnerships we have. We work with uh, different schools. We actually have some of our farms, working farms in inner city schools. Uh, one of them is at Phillips Academy Charter School in uh-huh. Newark, New Jersey as well. So all these different touch points are within the community. And when we talk about, you know, by the community, for the community, we're excited by these partnerships we have uh, with the city. Uh, we have got great leadership within Mayor Baraka. Before when it was Mayor Booker, now Senator Booker. Uh, we're constantly thinking about, again, how do we work um, with government and with policy to be able to help drive, again, support this kind of innovation. What most excites you right now? I know you're you have all these plans uh, for the UAE, but what what is most exciting about the work that you're doing right now? Uh, what excites us the most uh, is how we're aligned as an organization. Um, you know, these inflection points with the pandemic, in terms of you know, we realize that the foundation of who we are, how we operate, what our principles are, are more relevant than ever before. Uh, we talk about. Our responsibility as a food producing company, we're feeding our community. And so it's a tremendous amount of responsibility that we have there. And we're excited because we have an incredibly dedicated team, you know, from all levels. And, you know, for us, when we talk about building the company and the kind of impact we want to have around the world, it starts with the people and the people are helping bring this to life. And so our team is the thing that we're most excited about in terms of, again, how we can do more and their excitement and passion about what we're doing. You know, uh, I, I was alluding to some of the criticism you get from sort of soil-based farmers and, and you know, um, or, organizations that are really concerned about soil health before. But when you mentioned, you know, the sort of variety of plants that you're growing, I think there's over 700 or, or did you say 800 before? I, you know, I, in terms of biodiversity, how do you think you're contributing to sort of overall agricultural biodiversity? When we talk about growing 800 different varieties, I mean, it's a wide range of different crops. Um, We want to celebrate those varieties that have been lost. You know, when we think about, again, what's being um, consumed today in in the growing process, the the genetics are really focused on, you know, is it mildew resistant? Is it drought resistant? Key things like flavor um, have disappeared. You know, if we look at the seed bank from 100 years ago, just for lettuces, there were over 496 different types. Today, you know, there's less than 36 of those still remaining. And so yeah. it, we've lost, you know, that diversity. And so we can, you know, rethink about where and how we think about bringing back those back. Uh, we think about creating new new varieties that meet, you know, new, new demands. But it's a wide range of different crops as well. It's not just the leafy greens. And so, you know, we think we're, um, you know, doing good work on a few fronts there. Uh, just to build on the environmental stewardship standpoint of those, well, you know, the idea of, of really respecting the soil, uh, I think it's a great starting point. You know, there are a few things that we do. First, you know, the, our ability to grow, we don't have to have the same issues that you would have with a field-grown product in terms of heavy metals, um, 
and thinking about again where you could put the farms and having to remediate those those soils. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also things like uh, by letting the, the fields lay fallow, right? Allows it to regenerate. You think about carbon capture. Um, there's lots of benefits about not taxing, you know, where we've had huge monocultures uh, and monocrops in the past uh, that have stripped away the nutrients uh, and thinking about the efficiency and the fact, uh, 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 efficacy of that soil, you know, we're right. giving it time to remediate itself as well. Well, and, and, you know, discussions that we've had in the past and what you've said on this podcast, you don't feel like it's an us versus them kind of thing. Like you're not, you know, competing against soil based farmers because you're in, in some cases you're growing very different things. In some cases, it's the same thing, but you feel like there's room for both. And, and um, I think the issues that were sort of become controversial um, for some of these, especially organic farmers, is that. Uh, a lot of, of folks growing, you know, hydroponically are, are seeking organic certification. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, just to reiterate, uh, we're definitely all this together. So that's definitely a, a key, key message and key element there. Um, listen, the spirit of organics was to respect the health of the soil. And so, you know, the U.S. is uh, at odds with the world standard for organic. And so the fact that you're not growing in soil um, should pretty much rule out hydroponics um, and that kind of certification. So, you know, what we appreciate more than ever though, and you see this even within the organic movement with regenerative agriculture, right? There's now regenerative organic, right? So the idea that there's an appreciation that the standards that we have today just don't go far enough in terms of factoring the externalities. And so we actually think there's opportunities of how do we create new standards that take into account each of those different elements, water usage, uh, pesticide usage. Organic uses pesticides. And, you know, there's a lot of misconception around that. So whether it's natural or not, it's creating uh, imbalances you know, out there. So how how do we think differently about that? I think it's about how do we can come up with a new standard that can make sure that um, we factor in a lot more factors than has uh, historically been done. Mark, in terms of, you know, uh, folks like you talk a lot about the safety of their operations, but you know, what, what's kind of a, <laughs> this is an awful thing to talk about, but what's kind of a worst case scenario in terms of con- contamination or a threat against one of your facilities? What would that, you know, I, I'm sure that's something you have to think about as a, as a business owner, you know, operating globally. Um, you know, what, what, what kinds of things are you sort of preparing for? Yeah. Well, this is something that, you know, we think about how to operate the farm, You know, we have hundreds of different standard operating procedures. Most of them are rooted in food safety and ensuring the highest levels of of protocols so that we can minimize those risks. Um, Traditional risks that you would have out in the field with E. coli or salmonella are usually driven by animals, right? And the placement of the farms and issues with runoff, um, water contamination. So all these things we're able to manage very differently because of having a controlled system. All of our water uh, is UV treated upon. Um, entry, it's tested. Um, there's very little access into the building. Uh, it's very controlled. Um, our biggest challenges would be human, right? And so what we do is then develop the processes uh, around that. So if you think of like listeria or norovirus, um, mm-hmm. how do we minimize that? Um, so we have processes and procedures, you know, around that. Even with the COVID-19, you know, we uh, were able to uh, enhance and modify our standards even further, we increased uh, the number of times we were sanitizing, which is every day, but throughout the day, 
but we also started taking temperatures very early on of any employee going into the farm. And that was a requirement. And uh, we limited access even further in terms of, again, um, and making sure that we're really judicious in terms of thinking about how the farm is running, uh, social distancing. Uh, we have automation in a lot of different areas. So again, we have a very different uh, ability to think about, again, where we have uh, an ability to really minimize, you know, some of the pressures that we're seeing out there. So this is definitely about setting a new standard for those food safety and how we can then be able to extend that into multiple areas and regions and think differently about that. It's so interesting. I think food safety was sort of, you know, despite what you mentioned, like the E. coli outbreaks and the outbreaks in beef over the last, you know, decade, E. coli was one of those, or sorry, uh, uh, food safety was one of those things that was often ignored. But now with COVID, we're hearing a lot more about food safety because of food workers and and all of these things. So I, I, again, it's one of those sort of opportunities for consumers um, and, you know, uh, uh, business owners to learn more about these subjects. I think COVID is really, you know, again, exposing a lot of things, creating a lot of awareness where there wasn't before. Yeah. And we see differences in behavior. So we see a lot more interest in packaged foods and so packaged salads, but the idea that there's a protective barrier, right? And so yeah. um, people are looking for that reassurance. And so, yeah, the, it, the hierarchy of needs has definitely changed right now in terms of how people are navigating this time period. Yeah, and then sort of the unintended consequences of that, more packaged foods leads to more, you know, plastic waste and, and that kind of thing. And so figuring out, you know, how to how to minimize the impact on the environment from all of that packaged food, I think is, you know, sort of a, an, another set of challenges that we were, I think, making progress on. But now it, it seems uh, we might be going backward a little bit. It, there's definitely a balancing act with it. And, you know, we definitely right. have a point of view where, Package, you know, does serve an important aspect in terms of protecting the product. Uh, people might not appreciate that without it, there'd probably be even greater shrink or spoilage uh, issue. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about food waste, a lot of focus is on the food waste, right? In terms of, you know, forty percent of the food is being discarded. Actually, for leafy greens, if you take it back through the value chain, you know, from the home to the supermarket to the distributor to the processor to the farm, you know, it's over 70% is being lost, you know, yeah. in the process. Incredible. So think about the embedded energy and inputs uh, that go into that uh, much, much more than just the package itself. Right. And so package um, in terms of that food spoilage, uh, it's an interesting dynamic of how to really assess and, and do an end to end life cycle analysis on that. Absolutely. And then, then have proper recycling or, you know, bringing back containers, that kind of thing. Those, those are definitely things that, you know, consumers are aware of. And I know businesses are too. It's just something more to think about. Um, for folks who want to get more information about AeroFarms, they can go to aerofarms.com. They can follow you on Twitter at AeroFarms. Any other websites you want to give out, Mark? Yeah, our retail brand is uh, Dream Greens. And so Love Dream Greens is our website as well as our handle for both Instagram and, and Twitter. Yeah, so definitely be able to follow closely what we're doing. Uh, what we've been excited about because there's been so much more home cooking, right, than ever before, uh, interest in, in recipes. We have a lot of great recipe content. We've been working right. with some great partners on packaging that. And so we're seeing a lot of creativity on how they're using the greens. And so uh, whether it's our baby leafy greens or baby microgreens, which are even more uh, nutritionally dense, uh, it's been exciting to see people's uh, creativity in the kitchen now. 
That's really cool. That's great. Um, my last question, Mark, is, you know, you've talked a lot about the people you work with, but I wonder who's inspiring you the most right now. Um, you know, we have COVID-19. We have the uprisings that have happened because of systemic racism and police brutality. Is there a particular person in, in your life right now who's inspiring you? Yeah. So it starts with my wife, actually. And, and you know, what she's been able to, you know, just be a beacon of 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 reason and of hope, right? And so, uh, more than ever, appreciating the importance of family and the family unit. And so, um, we've been hunkered down together, and you know, it's been really meaningful for me to be able to have this much more quality time. So, uh, that's what gets me through, you know, everything that we're going through right now. That's great. That's great. Um, I know you travel so much, so it must be really nice to have that time w- with her and with your son and and just, you know, be able to to concentrate on family. I'm glad for that. Um, thanks so much for joining me today, Mark. A reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. And I hope folks will join me on our next episode when I'll be talking to Frida Hara Endenjoke uh, from the Food Recovery Network. Thanks so much, Mark. Please take care and stay well. Thank you, and I wish you the best as well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Today, I get to talk to Frida Herrera Endenjoke, who served as a leader within her local chapter of the Food Recovery Network from California State University at Northridge. She is now the executive chair of the Student and um, Alumni Advisory Board at the Food Recovery Network, and she is also the founder and project coordinator for Let's Grow Healthy, a community gardening initiative designed to decrease childhood obesity and promote healthy eating habits among children uh, in Canoga Park, an underserved neighborhood in Los Angeles. I'm so glad you could join us, Frida. I've been hearing so much about you from uh, Regina Northhouse. She's one of my really good friends and colleagues, and so I get to talk to her all the time. So thank you so much. We're really honored to have you. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. (laughs) So I'm hoping that you can just sort of Tell us about your experience with the Food Recovery Network and, and, and why you decided to become a volunteer and become a coordinator and, and, and why you decided to get involved. Yeah, definitely. Um, so my passion really comes from, um, from nutrition and really understanding that we all have a, this relationship with food. Sometimes people do not want to acknowledge it. They think that food is just habit or consumption and you just get hungry and you just satisfy that craving in your little tummy. But actually, you know, food is social. Food is, you know, a way of communicating and engaging with people. And more importantly, it is a way to nourish your body. So that is why I decided to pursue a degree in nutrition and dietetics and focus really on community education because I think that um, nowadays we are more influenced for our eating behaviors by the media or marketing rather than really listening to our intuition and what our bodies trying to tell us is like you're gonna eat a cheeseburger you may have a you know um a sodium overload later on (laughs) um so practically you know i became involved in uh food and dietetics and then um i was pretty active in one of my student organizations as a dietetic student Uh and one of my friends at the time her name was diwata uh, we were having one of our meetings and she's like well i just heard about like the food recovery network um, because she has been seeing, you know, people on our campus, you know, we have like about seven cafeterias where we're pretty big. 
um, you know, just throwing the food in the trash. And she's like, well, that's not okay. You know, so she did her research and she found out about the food recovery network. And during the meeting, she's like, I think I'm going to start this student club. Who's in? And I'm like, I am. <laughs> just great. because, you know, like in dietetics and everything practically in life, it all depends on balance, you know, and like this, like good and evil, yin and yang, whatever you want to interpret it. Um, and for me, it's just not sustainable that how come there is food waste and there is food insecurity at the same time? Yeah, like, they just, they just don't make sense <laughs> in a very rational um, thinking. It's like, well, how about you just give the food that is about to be wasted to the people who are hungry? And I think that is why the Food Recovery Network and just taking like this very clear approach as, you know, what could be waste could be food. It's still food. It's good edible. You know, we have like very rigorous training uh, could actually address food insecurity in our communities. Um, so I decided to get involved and I really love the mission. I really see how it really brings, you know, once again, this balance into the system as like we're doing it. And the most amazing thing is that it's actually done by students. So it actually um, it actually gives the students an opportunity to, you know, as college students, you know, you just graduated high school, you're starting to be an adult, integrating to society, and, you know, it just feels good to do good and to know that at the end of the day, you know, you avoided that waste and you put food on somebody's table. So I kept doing that, um, and I was actually the president for two years until I finished my grand, my undergraduate, and then, you know, I had the opportunity to jump into the student and the Love Night Advisory Board at the Food Recovery Network, which I think is a great opportunity just for alums and for people who is like, you know, just because you're done with your education or you're done with, like, this chapter of your life, you're done being a food fighter, you know, a food justice warrior. Um, and it's a really great experience to, to be able to do this in the Food Recovery Network. That's wonderful. And what I've really appreciated, uh, you know, about the Food Recovery Network is that you're not just learning skills around food recovery, although that's so important because you're, you're providing a valuable resource to communities and preventing that food from going to landfill and, you know, doing all of these other amazing things. But you're, you're learning a set of skills that you otherwise would not have been able to learn. It's like, it's not like school teaches you how to be a leader or te- teaches you how to talk to to cafeteria staff or, um, you know, uh, university uh, executives, basically. So I've just been really impressed about how how it, it the, the Food Recovery Network gives students a whole other set of skills. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a great opportunity. I, I grow so much from, like, my leadership um, position. And one of the best things that I learned is that it is so, so important to actually have a sense of community for the people who you work with. Um, so in many organizations, I'm pretty sure in many jobs, you know, you just get to know people. It's like, okay, we just work here. We just do the same thing together. But when I always talk about like my chapter or what I'm trying to do in the Food Recovery Network is actually building a community that is focused towards the same goal Mm -hmm. and like really acknowledging that everybody like plays a very, very important, you know, part in how the system works, you know, um, 
So that is something that I always try to install in my own leadership style. It's like really emphasizing and mentoring and how to be like the best role model that you can be. Um, because something that I always like to point out is that, you know, we as humans, we were not born knowing everything, you know, it's something that we learn from our parents, from our peers, from our teachers. And that is something that we can also learn from our peers. And that is what is so amazing about the Food Recovery Network in which, you know, they actually allow you to have like this leadership opportunities and then you get to grow as a mentor and then you get to get like this community or like I always tell people like get a wolf pack, you know, get surrounded by people who think like you. So that way, you know, you don't feel that you have to do all the work or that it's hard. You know, for me, sometimes people tell me like, has it been hard? I'm like, no, I just like every single volunteer that I have come in contact is like, I don't see them as just like, oh, thank you for volunteering. It's like, let's be friends. Let's have a talk. How was your morning? <laughs> you know? And like really inspire them and really integrate the mission because everybody, every single person, you know, people who are watching this or they're going to listen to this, you know, being the power of being a food justice warrior, I would like to avoid food waste it's in your hands it's just like really coming to a conscious decision as like i need to stop i need to adopt more sustainable things or how can i get involved or how can i actually um you know make a difference and it starts with only you <laughs> that's great that's great what uh food tank we have a lot of interns who are students at, at universities and one of them who i know is listening is is working on a piece around food recovery in scotland mm -hmm. and she uh, attended an online conference um uh, earlier this week about you know improving dignity uh in food recovery mm -hmm. for a food uh you know recovery recipients or clients of yes. food recovery organizations and i i wanted to get your thoughts on how that can be sort of you know built into the mission of organizations providing food not just you know because people need food they need calories they need nutrition but providing it in a really dignified way and why that's such an important part of what frn does and what so many other organizations involved in food recovery do yes definitely and then it really comes you know i think like the word of today is going to be relationships like are you building relationships when you're doing your food recoveries um well, uh, the best experiences that I have with food recoveries is that um, there was this organization, very grassroots. Um, so North Hollywood is a very, uh, you know, poverty-stricken area here in Los Angeles. And they will have something that it would just be like, you know, they would just make tacos for everyone who wanted to do it. And then I reach out to them and I'm like, well, my university, um, every Friday, you know, their buffet, you know, like I can come and bring the food. But I think the most important thing is to like really spend time in getting to know the person who you're serving. Because if not, you are just having like this savior paradox or paradigm as like, I just came here, boom. Right, you're right. <laughs> Look at me, I'm a savior. And I'm yeah. done. So one of the most wonderful things that I have tried to do is to actually sometimes just sit with them and then actually enjoy the meal that I'm bringing to them. And those were like the most amazing Fridays of my life because I was surrounded by the community that I was serving, that will respect me in my little car, that will help me take everything out of my car, they will help me wait it, and they will just have a meal. You know, with the partner agency, something that I try to do with my chapters is that, 
you can actually volunteer like every, you know, like a weekend of the month to make them breakfast, to make them lunch, you know, to, and they actually encourage you to sit down with them and, you know, share a meal because like you said, food is not more than calorie. I mean, food is more than calories. It is a social experience. And when you made it dignified, like, look, I'm not giving you waste. I'm like, this could have been waste, but it's not like I'm eating it. You know, I'm, I'm here with you. I'm listening. And you really start, you know, having like this sense of community and like this relationship is really impressive. Um, actually, one of the organizations that is um, pretty famous here in Los Angeles is called MEND, which it actually stands for Meeting Each Need with Dignity. Um, they have um, they have a dining service, and like when I mean they have a dining service, like I mean it. Like you're hungry, they'll come, they'll see you, and they'll take your order and they'll feed you. They it. will do it with dignity, you know, and I'm not going to say like every single recovery that I did was like that, but yeah. it really comes to like the initiative of every single person is like, I'm going to spend five minutes and I'm going to get to know this person. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to tell them how's your day? <laughs> like, what do you mm-hmm. think of what is happening? You know, have like those thoughtful conversations, the small talk in which they'll get to know your name and you'll get to know them. And there will be like this relationship because what really dignifies people is for them to be seen and for them to be heard. So that's something important that we have to do, you know, when we're providing a service. And that's something that I do all the time. Well, and I I love that you're talking about it as relationship building. It's not just one way, it's very two way. And I know that's very hard or very difficult right now with physical distancing, but there are still ways to provide that dignity, that empathy, that, you know, building sort of a community around this so that that people feel respected and honored and not just like they're getting a handout. Yes, definitely. And it really comes to a very basic thing, just listening, you know, really. And, you know, sometimes, uh, especially the population that you're serving has been, uh, you know, oppressed or, you know, trust systems are not there where they should be. Um, It really comes to like coming like really understanding their level and where they're coming from and, you know, like making it a humble experience. It's like you want to learn from them. You want to listen to them so that way, like, you can help them because sometimes you don't know. It has happened to me in which, like, somebody did a kind thing to me and, like, it totally made my day. Right, right, right. We all need that. We just like spread this kindness and like this understanding, you know, that you want to treat others the way you want to be treated. Um, Because the people who we're serving might not be in the best situation right now, but we never know when the tables might turn, you know, with the whole situation, it has turned. And to be quite honest with you, just because we cannot be in contact with with one another, it doesn't mean that we have no contact at all. you know, there is um, there is social media, there's phone, there's text messages. It's like checking in with each other um, yeah. just to really make sure like they matter. You know, we're still checking with our partner agencies and they have been doing like pop-up pantries. And we try to make sure to like spread the news because one of the one of the um, disadvantaged communities that we serve in our chapter is actually our own students. Right. You know, it's actually college students who are actually suffering food insecurity 
And what we can do is to actually just use our voice to share the resources. You know, like, you know that your council member is having a pantry, just share it, call, text it to somebody who may need it. And don't take it as like, oh, look, I thought of you because I thought you may need it. Just, just, just share it without like any explanation because you never know when it really comes to serving somebody and actually, um, you know, putting food on their table. So I've been pretty active, like in my own social media to make sure that I share any resources that I know about food pantries. And I know about them not because I need their service, just because I want to amplify their service. Um, and for people to know that, you know, even though we cannot go to the stores or, you know, we cannot have contact, there's like contactless ways for us to get, um, for us to get the needs that, yeah, the needs that we need. Absolutely. Absolutely. The resources that we need for sure. Um, can you tell us about uh, Let's Grow Healthy? I, I know people are more interested in growing their own food than ever before because of coronavirus. Can you talk about the work that you're doing and, and how, how, how one, how coronavirus has affected sort of, you know, the services you're able to provide, but why it started and, and why you, you, you sort of believe in its mission? Yeah, definitely. So to be quite honest with you, I did not grow in an agricultural way. You know, I grew up in Mexico City, so it was like a concrete jungle, just like Los Angeles, where I currently live. Um, so I, actually, I became interested in the movement because somebody told me sharing, once again, sharing resources, that there was a tree giveaway. And I'm like, I want to plant a tree. Why not? Mm -hmm. <laughs> So then I go into the tree giveaway and it actually took place in that community garden. And then I'm like, what is this? And they're like, oh, this is a community garden. And practically, you know, like everyone just has a piece of land and you get to grow your own fruits and vegetables. And I'm like, what? Like I thought fruits and vegetables came from like very far away. They came in like in plastic packages and all that. So it was a very much eye-opening experience. And then for a second, I just like started thinking, um, you know, because that's the way how I grew up as an urban child. And I'm like, what would it be the situation for all these urban children, <laughs> you know, uh, in Los Angeles? And then, you know, I started, you know, my career in nutrition and dietetics. And I was very much fortunate to have support from the National Institutes of Health to have a research fellowship um, called Bill Poder. So practically, I decided to just really focus my research on how can I provide like a system, uh, a sustainable system in which we can start teaching kids about um, nutrition. Um, so unfortunately, um, nutrition education is not emphasized, you know, in our education system. It's really up to the parents, you know, it's really up to like the teacher maybe saying like, oh, eat fruits and vegetables. Okay, nice. Well, how many? <laughs> so, uh, so then I decided that there was, um, well, I discussed with my faculty mentors and then there was a need in our communities to actually have nutrition education, but that will make it a little bit more fun. And by then I was already part of a community garden and I'm like, okay, if I poke a hole and I put a seed and, <laughs> and then just like really trying to like understand the whole concept and sure. it's pretty self-explanatory sometimes. Um, and I can only confess that I have killed more plants that I have grown. <laughs> So please do not get the whole green thumb myth getting your head because it's something that you just have to keep trying and sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it's not. But the more you try, the better you do. 
Absolutely. Well, I just decided to bring this to the schools, you know, with the wonderful support of academics in California State University, Northridge. I was able to develop this intervention with curriculum in which we will have a really small nutrition class in the classroom. And then we will like sort of apply the knowledge into the garden. And like, the kids were just fascinated by soil. They're like, what is this? Fascinated and sometimes terrified of soil. It's like, ooh. <laughs> and I was actually just watching a documentary about like the importance of like exposing children to like, you know, like pets and soil and all that. And I'm like, why are you terrified of soil? That's where like the microbes that you need for your immune system comes. But, you know, since we in cities, we tend to be like, you know, clean everything, clean everything, you know. Sure. Right now it's understandable, but, you know, sometimes you need to, to let your kids play in the dirt just right. so they can build their immune system. Absolutely. And it has just been such an amazing opportunity because I have not just been able to reach the kids um, actually do my research showing, showing like very much positive results as like the kids are learning about nutrition and gardening. But also the most important component is once again, the capital, the social capital, the university students are right. because I have interns. Um, well, I work with interns. I don't have them. I work with interns, you know, who just want to get the experience um, of how to be a health educator. And I do it by providing them training. I do it by mentoring. Once again, that word, I'm not going to be like, okay, read this paper and go to this classroom and good luck. <laughs> so it really comes and like really how, how to, how can we inspire the next generation of students to make a difference um, by them benefiting as well. So they can actually put Let's Go Healthy internship in the resumes. They can say that they have communication skills. They can say that they can teach a class. They can say they can control a bunch of kindergartners. My gosh, that is an accomplishment. (laughs) (laughs) So so it really comes as, you know, really wanting to make a difference. And I am so happy that this program is sustainable. You know, we have built like relationship with community partners that provide us with seeds and soil. So we actually don't have to have any investment uh, per se in doing the work so we can invest in our students for it to become a career opportunity. Um, as far as um, the pandemic, yes, we have been impacted. Um, LAUSD, our school system, uh, our school district is currently closed, um, and it was, it seems like it's not going to be open or going back to normal um, for the following academic year. So, unfortunately, we are not sure when we're going to be able to go back to the schools for the things that Let's Grow Healthy has also expanded to university students. Um, We do have, I was able to, um, with the help of my professor, to start a a garden. It's more like a demonstration garden. It's very small. Uh, in which, you know, it's in the heart of campus and we have a lot of workshops on nutrition education and the use of plants for food. Um, actually, if you're interested, I can send you more details. I mean, little shameless plug, but today I'm going to be talking about medicinal use of plants and how, you know, we can actually use plants for medicine, you know, to alleviate like our physical pains instead of like popping up the pill, right? So. Don't worry, I'm going to film it today and then I'm going to share it. <laughs> uh, it's very inspiring, but we keep going. Like everybody should start their own gardens. This is the Victory Garden 
Um, that's what is called the Victory Garden um, movement. And yes, if you want to know more gardening, just keep putting seeds in the ground. One of them will sprout. <laughs> that's great. That's great. You, you recently gave a, a presentation entitled Nutrition Justice, Fighting uh, Waste While Feeding People. And I love this term, nutrition justice, because it's not something we often hear about. You know, we talk a lot about food justice. We talk a lot about food security. But nutrition justice, I, I'm, I'm hoping you can explain what that means to you, because I it brings up a lot of, of different things for me. I also went to a school of nutrition uh, at, at Tufts. And so I, I feel like we don't talk enough about nutrition and we don't talk enough about, you know, how it relates to the social justice aspects of, of what we're seeing, you know, sort of unfold in the United States right now when people don't have access to you know, good incomes and jobs during the pandemic and, you know, p- people who've been sort of, uh, you know, uh, underserved for for generations uh, because of racism in this country. I think this term nutrition justice holds a lot more power than it did even, you know, a week ago. Yes, definitely. Um, so just like the very simple thing is that nutrition justice is to like really address the nutritional needs of people. You know, it's not just food or empty calories because we have known like the data shows just because like I said, that's what I'm going to be focusing on my doctorate. Um, You know, like what is the definition of healthy? Like we really need to understand that like what's nutritious, you know, you and I, we have this background in which we understand it's a balanced diet with a variety of food groups, you know, according to your, you know, intake needs and in order to provide all the macro and micronutrients that your body needs to be healthy. Sure. But when it comes to like uh, food justice, sometimes people think that just putting food on the table, it's enough. And, you know, there's, there can be a lot of empty calories out there. And the data also shows that, unfortunately, you know, this is, an, once again, another one of the paradox that we have. How can obesity and malnutrition exist, like coexist? Like it just doesn't like make sense in my mind. And people are now starting to see obesity as malnutrition. So malnutrition, it just means that you don't have adequate nutrition. So they're not getting like the right amount of, you know, food groups that they should be intaking because, you know, when you go to food pantries, most of the things that you're going to find is going to be, you know, um, non-perishables, you know, things that are like maybe loaded in sodium or sugar in order to conserve its properties or sometimes just the taste. (laughs) So when it comes to like nutritious justice, it's the like really understanding once again, what you were saying, dignity is like, if you're going to provide me a meal, you know, try your best to provide me a nutritious, you know, dignifying meal. And at the same time, like bringing a lot of awareness of what it is. Something that I really encourage in all our partner agencies is that can you just like, please just have like a little informational sheet about my plate. And actually in one of the partnerships that we actually go and cook, you know, brunch for them, they actually have like a my plate there. So like, and they're like, when we came and cook and they're like, you need to make sure that they get like all this. And we're like, yeah, we're nutrition students. Well, we're proud of you. <laughs> um, and it really comes to like really bringing awareness um, of like the inequities and uh, inequities. And yeah, you, you really know that as like, especially like in the current situation, how 
people of color, minorities, regarding like many other things, they're not able to have access to nutritious food. So that is what food justice stands for. Um, actually, food justice is like a component of how can, for example, at season is like, how can we bring food from our gardens to our college food pantry? You know, that's something that I have been doing like throughout the summer. Wow. And I'm just not trying to provide like the tomato. Maybe I can bring like an herb and I can give you some information on how to use this herb to like enhance your nutrition. You know, it's not just about sodium, fat and sugar that will make you feel good and will make you feel satisfied, but actually addressing your nutritional needs. And that's really what food justice means. And it can be, you know, whenever I want to donate something to to a pantry, I'm very much like, would I eat this? (laughs) That's my question. Like, would I eat this? Would I allow my kid to eat this? You know, um, so it really comes to really treating everybody with equity and and with understanding and dignity and building those relationships that are so essential to really have justice. Exactly. And it, it, it does. It all goes back to relationships and, and really building that rapport with people and, and treating others how you would treat yourself, which I think that you just mm-hmm. made this perfect comment. What would I give the, you know, if, if I'm going to give this away, would I consider eating this? And if the answer is no, then it's not good enough probably to give away. So I, I think there's a lot of value in that. Um, your dissertation is going to focus on, you start, congratulations, by the way, you start your PhD in global health uh, in Oregon in the fall. Um, and, and you want to focus your dissertation on on something very particular. Do you want to talk about that a little? Well, it's still in the works, but yeah, practically um, what I'm very much interested in is like really understanding what, like, this is a reality. One in nine Americans are hungry, are, well, not hungry, food insecure, which, you know, can lead to hunger. Um, sorry, I had to use the right terms. <laughs> and I just think, you know, with this pandemic and like with this, like, you know, switch in like our global economy and like how we do things and like people like really waking up to, you know, the justice system and like how we're really treating people. I really want to investigate what has been the impact of this, you know, um, first of all, COVID-19, because he has like a great impact. I mean, a lot of people lost their jobs. <laughs> you know, a lot of people were not able to go to the grocery store um, in fear or, you know, unfortunately, the other side of things is that a lot of people went to the grocery store, hoarded food, and then wasted it. <laughs> so I'm just like, you know, really understanding what was the human experience of this? You know, um, I can only give you like that much of that because I'm still working on it. <laughs> no, but I think that impact on, on communities of, of, of color and people who've been you know, underserved and people who've lost their jobs. That's going to be such important information because we really need to learn from this crisis. Yes, exactly. It's how to learn from this crisis. And we have been like listening, we know, with our own social justice um, as like it really comes to listening to people and, you know, not try to appropriate their fight and don't try to say, well, what I think this would be, you know, like really listen to the experts, educate yourself advocate you know after you have done your research and really say like this is a message and this is a solution when it comes to sometimes what i call little steps big impact you know um if you're very much into like climate change please help us eliminate food waste 
freeze your compost. You know, if you're not able to go to a compost place right away, just throw it in the freezer. You know, I have been able to reduce my carbon footprint by composting so much. Like I throw my trash like once a month and it doesn't smell. <laughs> um, you're really, you know, into life for justice. Share those resources, you know, and with people who need it, you know, don't be afraid to use your social media as a platform for change. Because at this point that we cannot gather anymore, but people are on their phones because they are not on their vacation anymore. <laughs> you know, they're not more worried about what to drink. They're more worried at like what is really happening. Uh, society is waking up to this movement. So please share resources. And, you know, if you really stand for nutritious justice, like really think of like, how can you be a liaison in your own community as like, how can you bring community gardens? How can you bring, um, I don't know, businesses and really bring it to the populations who are hurting the most? Because we know that it is it is the reality. People of color have been impacted by this pandemic. They lost their jobs because they most likely work in service. Um, sometimes non-essential service and they didn't have I would say the blessing of having the opportunity to work from home. Absolutely. So um so yeah, definitely amplify your voice, be a good role model and just really use any single resources that you have to just fight for the cuts because you know <laughs> little steps big impact. That's that's what matters. You don't have to go to Congress. You just really have to be really aware of what's going on, educate yourself and spread the good news. That's wonderful. And I mean, with so many college kids at home, sort of hunkered down trying to figure out what to do, you know, what their next steps are, I hope they're all listening to you and, you know, amplifying their own voices through social media, through volunteering in safe ways, through getting involved with organizations like yours. I just think that's really, really wonderful and inspiring. And, um, you know, I think uh, hearing from young people like you who are doing this work will be very beneficial to them. I want to end... Um, uh, on, uh, you know, asking you who's inspiring you the most right now. I know so much has been going on in the Los Angeles area. You've, you've, you know, had a lot of, of, of things happening during the pandemic and, and with the uprisings, is there a particular person you've been really inspired by? Yes. <laughs> and that is Sean King, <laughs> one of the main leaders of the black, uh, Black Lives Matter. He um, and I actually, I'm gonna be quite honest with you. I just really realized who he was maybe a week ago, and I'm very ashamed. <laughs> but I started like feeling. I, I started like following his social media, and I really like you know how he really tries to make everything a grassroots movement, and that he is you know sometimes unashamed, apologetically, just using their social media to standing what he's for. And something that I have to start seeing like in my own peers is like, don't let, you know, social justice or just justice or whatever you stand for, you know, hurt the aesthetics of your social media. You know, be who you are when you are, you know, there has been studies that a lot of people just, you know, they fake it on Instagram because they're like hashtag living the life. Right. Nobody's living the life right now. We're locked up, <laughs> you know. Or, uh, it's right now. It's like hashtag living the dream, you know. As like you can be a contributing member of the society by simply utilizing your social media um, outlets 
talking to your immediate ones. So please, that always comes like, please don't be one person in social media and be like another person at the dinner table. You know, it's just really, truly um, being genuine of who you are. Of course, don't put your social security information in there. But, you know, because you never know who you're going to be inspiring. And something that has been happening to me is that a lot of people have been, you know, contacting me in social media and wanting to work in projects. And I can only say that I am totally open for it. I'm going to do my shameless plug. This is my Instagram. It's just my name. <laughs> so if you're right now listening or maybe you hear it to the postcast, post, post, sorry, <laughs> can't talk right now. It's okay. You can practically just follow me at Frida Ending Joke, and you guys can just really have the opportunity, you know, or you can find me on Facebook. I'm a pretty open ended person. I really stand in amplifying voices and, you know, really using that youth and that eagerness to make a change because we're going through a change. And right now, as I address the class of 2020, in which I'm part of, we are the builders of the normal. We're not going back to normal. Please stop saying that. We are building a beautiful new normal in which hopefully people would understand that we need to stop ignoring these problems and we need to face them right now with individual changes and through amplifying the voices of people who are doing amazing work. That's awesome. We'll have uh, Frida's Instagram um, uh, available on our website, foodtank.com. If you want more information about the Food Recovery Network, please go to foodrecoverynetwork.org. Frida, your energy is amazing. I I can't wait someday to meet you in person. Um, And I I can only imagine all the great things you're going to do. Thank you so much for joining me today. You've been a real pleasure. A reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, A Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. And please join me on our next episode when I'll be talking to Emily Simonessa, who's a farmer and artist. Thanks so much, Frida. Please stay well. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for the opportunity. And I hope, you know, we just stay connected and we keep making the change. Absolutely. Onward. (laughs) Onward and upward. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.